Chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 from Rambling Notes of an Idle Excursion, 1877. What we saw in Bermuda. We saw no bugs or reptiles to speak of, and so I was thinking of saying in print, in a general way, that there were none at all but one night after I had gone to bed, the reverend came into my room carrying something, and asked, Is this your boot? I said it was, and he said he had met a spider going off with it. Next morning he stated that just at dawn the same spider raised his window, and was coming in to get his shirt, but saw him and fled. I inquired, Did he get the shirt? No. How did you know it was a shirt he was after? I could see it in his eyes. We inquired around, but could hear of no Bermudian spider capable of doing these things. Citizens said that their largest spiders could not more than spread their legs over an ordinary saucer, and that they had always been considered honest. Here was testimony of a clergyman against the testimony of mere worldlings, interested ones too on the whole i judged it best to lock up my things here and there on the country roads we found lemon pawpaw orange lime and fig trees also several sorts of palms among them the cocoa the date and the palmetto we saw some bamboos forty feet high with stems as thick as a man's arm jungles of the mangrove tree stood up out of swamps propped on their interlacing roots as upon a tangle of stilts. In drier places the noble tamarind sent down its grateful cloud of shade. Here and there the blossomy tamarisk adorned the roadside. There was a curious gnarled and twisted black tree, without a single leaf on it. It might have passed itself off for a dead apple tree, but for the fact that it had a star-like, red-hot flower sprinkled sparsely over its person. It had the scattery red glow that a constellation might have when glimpsed through smoked glass. We saw a tree that bears grapes, and just as calmly and unostentatiously as a vine would do it. We saw an India rubber tree, but out of season possibly, so there were no shoes on it, nor suspenders, nor anything that a person would properly expect to find there. This gave it an impressively fraudulent look. There was exactly one mahogany tree on the island. I know this to be reliable, because I saw a man who said he had counted it many a time and could not be mistaken. He was a man with a hair lip and a pure heart, and everybody said he was as true as steel. Such men are all too few. Chapter 13 From Puddenhead Wilson's Calendar 1892 to 1893. Tell the truth or trump, but get the trick. Adam was but human, this explains it all. He did not want the apple for the apple's sake, he wanted it only because it was forbidden. The mistake was in not forbidding the serpent, then he would have eaten the serpent. Whosoever has lived long enough to find out what life is, knows how deep a debt of gratitude we owe to Adam, the first great benefactor of our race. He brought death into the world. 
Adam and Eve had many advantages, but the principal one was that they escaped teething. There is this trouble about special providences, namely, there is so often a doubt as to which party was intended to be the beneficiary. In the case of the children, the bears, and the prophet, the bears got more real satisfaction out of the episode than the prophet did, because they got the children. Training is everything. The peach was once a bitter almond. Cauliflower is nothing but cabbage with a college education. Remarks of Dr. Baldwin's concerning upstarts. We don't care to eat toadstools that think they are truffles. Let us endeavor so to live that when we come to die even the undertaker will be sorry. Habit is habit, and not to be flung out of the window by any man, but coaxed downstairs a step at a time. One of the most striking differences between a cat and a lie is that a cat has only nine lives. The holy passion of friendship is of so sweet and steady and loyal and enduring a nature that it will last through a whole lifetime, if not asked to lend money. Consider well the proportions of things. It is better to be a young June-bug than an old bird of paradise. Why is it that we rejoice at birth and grieve at a funeral? It is because we are not the person involved. It is easy to find fault, if one has that disposition. There was once a man who, not being able to find any other fault with his coal, complained that there were too many prehistoric toads in it. All say, how hard it is that we have to die, a strange complaint to come from the mouths of people who have had to live. When angry, count four. When very angry, swear. There are three infallible ways of pleasing an author, and the three form a rising scale of compliment. One, to tell him you have read one of his books. Two, to tell him you have read all of his books. Three, to ask him to let you read the manuscript of his forthcoming book. Number one admits you to his respect. Number two admits you to his admiration. Number three carries you clear into his heart. As to the adjective, when in doubt, strike it out. Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Except a creature be part coward, it is not a compliment to say it is brave. It is merely a loose misapplication of the word. Consider the flea, incomparably the bravest of all the creatures of God, if ignorance of fear were courage. Whether you are asleep or awake, he will attack you, caring nothing for the fact that in bulk and strength you are to him as are the massed armies of the earth to a sucking child. He lives both day and night, and all days and nights, in the very lap of peril and the immediate presence of death, and yet is no more afraid than is the man who walks the streets of a city that was threatened by an earthquake ten centuries before. When we speak of Clive, Nelson and Putman as men who didn't know what fear was, we ought always to add the flea, and put him at the head of the procession. When I reflect upon the number of disagreeable people who I know have gone to a better world, 
I am moved to lead a different life. October. This is one of the peculiarly dangerous months to speculate in stocks. The others are July, January, September, April, November, May, March, June, December, August, and February. The true southern watermelon is a boon apart, and not to be mentioned with commoner things. It is chief of this world's luxuries, king by the grace of God, over all the fruits of the earth. When one has tasted it, he knows what the angels eat. It was not a southern watermelon that Eve took. We know it because she repented. Nothing so needs reforming as other people's habits. Behold, the fool saith, put not all thine eggs in the one basket, which is but a manner of saying, scatter your money and your attention. But the wise man saith, put all your eggs in the one basket and watch that basket. If you pick up a starving dog and make him prosperous, he will not bite you. This is the principal difference between a dog and a man. We know all about the habits of the ant, we know all about the habits of the bee, but we know nothing at all about the habits of the oyster. It seems almost certain that we have been choosing the wrong time for studying the oyster. Even popularity can be overdone. In Rome, along at first, you are full of regrets that Michelangelo died. But by and by, you only regret that you didn't see him do it. July 4. Statistics show that we lose more fools on this day than on all the other days of the year put together. This proves, by the number left in stock, that one-fourth of July per year is now inadequate. The country has grown so. Thanksgiving Day. Let all give humble, hearty, and sincere thanks, now, but the turkeys. In the island of Fiji they do not use turkeys, they use plumbers. It does not become you and me to sneer at Fiji. Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. It were not best that we should all think alike. It is difference of opinion that makes horse races. Even the clearest and most perfect circumstantial evidence is likely to be at fault, after all, and therefore ought to be received with great caution. Take the case of any pencil sharpened by any woman. If you have witnesses, you will find she did it with a knife, but if you take simply the aspect of the pencil, you will say she did it with her teeth. April 1. This the day upon which we are reminded of what we are on the other 364. It is often the case that the man who can't tell a lie thinks he is the best judge of one. October 12. The Discovery. It was wonderful to find America, but it would have been more wonderful to miss it. Chapter 14 from The Private History of a Campaign That Failed. 1885. THE MARIAN RANGERS You have heard from a great many people who did something in the war. Is it not fair and right that you listen a little moment to one who started out to do something in it, but didn't? 
thousands entered the war, got just a taste of it, and then stepped out again permanently. In that summer of 1861, the first wash of the wave of war broke upon the shores of Missouri. Our state was invaded by the Union forces. They took possession of St. Louis, Jefferson Barracks, and some other points. The governor, Caleb Jackson, issued his proclamation, calling out 50,000 militia to repel the invader. I was visiting in the small town where my boyhood had been spent, Hannibal, Marion County. Several of us got together in a secret place by night, and formed ourselves into a military company. One Tom Lyman, a young fellow of a good deal of spirit, but of no military experience, was made captain. I was made second lieutenant. We had no first lieutenant. I do not know why. It was long ago. There were fifteen of us. By the advice of an innocent connected with the organization, we called ourselves the Marion Rangers. I do not. I thought it sounded quite well. The young fellow who proposed this title was perhaps a fair sample of the kind of stuff we were made of. He was young, ignorant, good-natured, well-meaning, trivial, full of romance, and given to reading chivalric novels and singing forlorn love ditties. He had some pathetic little nickel-plated, aristocratic instincts, and detested his name, which was Dunlap, detested it partly because it was nearly as common in that region as Smith, but mainly because it had a plebeian sound to his ear. So he tried to ennoble it by writing it in this way, D apostrophe capital U N L A P. That contented his eye, but left his ear unsatisfied, for people gave the new name the same old pronunciation, emphasis on the front end of it. He then did the bravest thing that can be imagined, a thing to make one shiver when one remembers how the world is given to resenting shams and affectations. He began to write his name so. Lowercase d, capital U, lowercase n, space, capital L, lowercase a, p. And he waited patiently through the long storm of mud that was flung at this work of art, and he had his reward at last, for he lived to see that name accepted, and the emphasis put where he wanted it by people who had known him all his life, and to whom the tribe of Dunlaps had been as familiar as the rain and sunshine for forty years. So sure of victory at last is the courage that can wait. He said he had found, by consulting some ancient French chronicles, that the name was rightly and originally written, lowercase d, capital U, lowercase n, space, capital L, lowercase a, p, and said that, if it were translated into English, it would mean Peterson, lap, Latin or Greek, he said, for stone or rock, same as the French Pierre, that is to say, Peter, lowercase d apostrophe, of or from, lowercase un, a or one, hence, lowercase d, capital U, lowercase n, space, capital L, lowercase a, p, of or from a stone or a Peter, that is to say, one who is the son of a stone, the son of a Peter, Peter's son. 
our militia company were not learned and the explanation confused them so they called him peterson dunlap he proved useful to us in his way he named our camps for us and he generally struck a name that was no slouch as the boys said that is one sample of us another was ed stevens son of the town jeweller trim-built handsome graceful neat as a cat bright educated but given over entirely to fun there was nothing serious in life to him as far as he was concerned this military expedition of ours was simply a holiday i should say that about half of us looked upon it in the same way not consciously perhaps but unconsciously we did not think we were not capable of it as for myself i was full of unreasoning joy to be done with turning out of bed at midnight and four in the morning for a while grateful to have a change new scenes new occupations a new interest in my thoughts that was as far as i went i did not go into the details as a rule one doesn't at twenty-four another sample was smith the blacksmith's apprentice this vast donkey had some pluck of a slow and sluggish nature but a soft heart at one time he would knock a horse down for some impropriety and at another he would get homesick and cry however he had one ultimate credit to his account which some of us hadn't he stuck to the war and was killed in battle at last joe bowers another sample was a huge good-natured flax-headed lover lazy sentimental full of harmless brag a grumbler by nature an experienced industrious ambitious and often quite picturesque liar and yet not a successful one for he had had no intelligent training but was allowed to come up just anyway this life was serious enough to him and seldom satisfactory but he was a good fellow anyway and the boys all liked him he was made orderly sergeant stevens was made corporal these samples will answer and they are quite fair ones well this herd of cattle started for the war what could you expect of them they did as well as they knew how but really what was justly to be expected of them nothing i should say that is what they did for a time life was idly delicious it was perfect there was nothing to mar it then came some farmers with an alarm one day they said it was rumoured that the enemy were advancing in our direction from over hyde's prairie the result was a sharp stir among us and general consternation it was a rude awakening from our pleasant trance the rumour was but a rumour nothing definite about it so in the confusion we did not know which way to retreat lyman was for not retreating at all in these uncertain circumstances but he found that if he tried to maintain that attitude he would fare badly for the command was in no humour to put up with insubordination so he yielded the point and called a council of war to consist of himself and the three other officers but the privates made such a fuss about being left out that we had to allow them to remain for they were already present and doing the most of the talking too the question was which way to retreat but all were so flurried that nobody seemed to have even a guess to offer 
except Lyman. He explained in a few calm words that, inasmuch as the enemy was approaching from over Hyde's Prairie, our course was simple. All we had to do was not to retreat towards him. Any other direction would answer our needs perfectly. Everybody saw in a moment how true this was, and how wise. So Lyman got a great many compliments. It was now decided that we should fall back on Mason's farm. It was after dark by this time, and as we could not know how soon the enemy might arrive, it did not seem best to try to take the horses and things with us. So we only took the guns and ammunition, and started at once. We heard a sound, and held our breath and listened, and it seemed to be the enemy coming, though it could have been a cow, for it had a cough like a cow. But we did not wait, but left a couple of guns behind, and struck out for Mason's again, as briskly as we could scramble along in the dark. But we got lost presently among the rugged little ravines, and wasted a good deal of time finding the way again, so it was after nine o'clock when we reached Mason's stile at last. And then, before we could open our mouths to give the countersign, several dogs came bounding over the fence, with great riot and noise, and each of them took a soldier by the slack of his trousers, and began to back away with him. We could not shoot the dogs without endangering the persons they were attached to. So we had to look on helplessly at what was perhaps the most mortifying spectacle of the Civil War. There was light enough, and to spare, for the Masons had now run out on the porch with candles in their hands. The old man and his son came, and undid the dogs without difficulty, all but Bowers's. But they couldn't undo his dog, they didn't know his combination. He was of the bull kind and seemed to be set with a Yale time-lock. But they got him loose at last with some scalding water, of which Bowers got his share, and returned thanks. End of chapters 12, 13, and 14